Hey everybody, I'm Trace. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today, we're going to talk about the science of sex. Not like the science of sex socially or the science of how to do sex. We're actually going to talk about the molecules in your brain, the hormones that are released, the brain regions that are turned on, what those hormones can do for you. And eventually we're going to talk about the future of sex and where all of these hormones and molecules might be in, say, 50 or 100 years. Are we going to have sex robots? What about monogamy? Is that still going to be a thing? Over the next 35 or 40 minutes, we're going to dig deep into the science, into the molecular neurobiology, and into the robotics of human sexuality. It's going to be really cool. But before we kick in, this podcast does acknowledge that sex exists, obviously. So if you are with kids, you might want to pause it, have the talk before listening, or think of it, you know, as a prereq for the talk if you want, because let's face it, this episode is all about the science of doing the dirty bird. I mean, bird sex, though, that's actually a whole other episode. Maybe we should do that. That'd be cool. Anyway, another time, another time, Trace. Okay. So anyway, sex, really interesting. Let's kick into it. Okay, so sex, it's a thing. It's a thing that a lot of people do a lot of the time. In fact, somewhere on Earth right now, someone is having sex. I mean, we could probably figure out the math on that, but I'm sure actually many thousands of people are having sex at this exact moment. But the math is actually all over the place, ranging from hundreds of thousands to millions. Freud would say that sex is at the center of human development, and procreation is literally the goal of many, if not most, of the species on our planet. And of course... Most of those species are far less complicated than we humans are. So let's focus instead on us humans and sex related to us specifically because we're self-centered. Sex is the act of intercourse, and it can involve a lot of different methods, a lot of different sexes, a lot of different genders, and so on. And most of what we're going to talk about is research done with male-female pairings. And commonly, when I'm referring to male or female, I'm talking about whatever sex was held through puberty. I'm not an expert, but if you are LGBTQ, QIA+, then your identifying gender may be more important than your birth assignment to some of this. So use your best judgment. Head to the comments or find me on the tweet machine if you have any more questions. But let's dive into a pool of hormones and biology, shall we? What's happening in your brain before, during, and after sex? Let's talk into that. So before sex, obviously you have to be aroused also known as turned on. And I found uh, an article by Dr. Carla Clark on Brain Blogger, and they actually did a meta-analysis of 58 different studies. And they looked at how sex studies were done. Commonly, they were done with men, some hetero and homosexual men, also some heterosexual women, not a lot of homosexual women, interestingly. And the four components that they found to prep for sexy times included cognitive, emotional, motivational, and physiological components. So let's break these down. The cognitive component involves ventromedial prefrontal cortex activation and limbic reward and emotion systems, and it includes attention to the sexual stimulation, whatever that is, the uh, mental rehearsal or visualizing in your mind's eye the idea of the sexual activity. So that's the cognitive component of being turned on. The emotional component involves the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, and that's where you're thought to evaluate the emotional connection and content of any sexual stimulation that you might be perceiving or thinking about, as well as sensory processes and other attention. 
The motivational component of being turned on involves the anterior cingulate cortex, or ACC, the thalamus, the parietal cortex, and the hypothalamus in the brain. Hello, limbic system. Very important to being turned on. It's an ancient part of our brain connected mainly to our behaviors. So it comes back to erections, although that's only been proven in monkeys, urges, desires, and feelings of reward. So that's a big part of being turned on. And also being turned on, the component of the physiology is involving the body responses to the brain. So heart rate, blood pressure, genital responses, hormonal changes. And in males, the hypothalamus triggers the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems to get the penis going. Now, that's just being turned on. I don't know how far into this podcast we are, like I don't know how many minutes we are, but let me tell you, this is a big deal because we're not even to the sex part yet. And look at all the different brain areas that are involved, all of the different systems that have to work together, both physically, emotionally, and mentally to try and get you to a place where you can even perform the act of sex. Yeah, this is cool. So being turned on, it's complex. And it's not just biological, it's also psychological, which we haven't even really tapped into yet. In one study, they wrote, quote, the psychophysiological approach to sexual response emphasizes the interaction between the physiological component of arousal and the subjective experience of arousal, as well as the emotional processing of the sexual situation itself. This is in a study. They were looking at all of these different things and trying to figure out just how arousal worked. People need to like and relate to the sexual stimulation that they're imagining or about to engage in, and psychology plays a big part of that, which no duh. But not everyone experiences this regularly. There's a thing called hyposexuality. Uh, just to lay this out for everybody, hypo less, hyper more. So hyposexuality is less sexuality. Hypersexuality would be more sexuality than what would be considered ordinary or average. Hyposexual men were compared in a study to what would be considered ordinarily sexual men. And it was a very small group, I wanna point out, only 15 people, half were hypo, half were ordinary, and they injected them with a mild radioactive tracer, nothing that would harm them, very normal, because they were going to give them a PET scan, a PET scan. And they showed them adult films in the lab. They injected them with radiation, and then they said, watch this porn. <laughs> Sex studies are weird. The main difference is a tiny patch of neurons in the medial orbitofrontal cortex lit up differently in hyposexual men than it did in ordinary men. It's part of our emotion center. And the reason they were doing this is to treat the ordinary and hyposexual men as sort of control groups and experimental groups. They could see what in our brains would light up in ordinary men when they appear to be turned on. And it turns out part of our emotional center gets activated. So our emotions are definitely engaged when sex is involved across the board, no matter what people try and convince themselves. And getting turned on is individual. It's more of an art than a science, one could say. And for many females, I want to make sure and point out, arousal is also heavily dependent on location and comfort, stress, and other factors like relationships with their partner and contextual life outside of the relationship. Another study with fMRIs, which is a little stronger, if you could say, than a PET scan, it's a little faster, tracks blood flow. They looked at a temporal lobe, amygdala, and hippocampal interaction and advanced parts of the brain as well as the limbic system. Sex, they found, isn't just carnal. It's also related to emotion and memory and the theory of mind, which is really interesting. It means that you have to be able to sense what's going on in someone else's body 
in order to really engage in sex, both emotionally and also physically. Plus, in a Dutch study, which was separate, where they scanned men's brains while their partners pleasured them, again, sex studies, wow, this is all science. <laughs> the amygdala actually saw decreased blood flow. The amygdala is the emotion center of the brain in some cases, some would say, but it's also the fear and anxiety center of the brain, which means you have less anxiety, less fear, less inhibitions while engaging in sexual activity. Researchers think that it cuts these feelings during arousal, which does make sense. It helps people kind of go with the flow during sex. Another fMRI study done in 2017, although with women this time, they found that if they were self-stimulating, masturbating, or with a partner, they had similar brain activity to the male studies that we've talked about, except in one notable location, the cingulate gyrus in the brain. That's pain and emotional processing. And more research is needed on what that exactly means, but they made a number of different um, guesses as to the fact that pain was somehow related to female sexuality and also that emotional processing might be more important. But again, they were completely just guessing. They have no idea. They need to do more research. Another EEG study was done. And the reason they are doing all of these different studies, by the way, is because fMRIs do blood flow and PET scans kind of check where things are moving around. EEGs check brain activity, but they get faster with each level. So PETs are kind of slow. fMRIs are a little faster. You can kind of see activity as it happens, but it's still under a delay. EEGs are more or less live, so you can see exactly what's happening, but they all sense different things. So in this EEG study, they found so many different regions of the brain were lighting up during sexual activity. They were showing subjects pictures of people in swimsuits and <laughs> the brain lit up all over the place. The decision that they had to make was whether they found this person attractive or not, whether this person was sexually attractive. And they made the decision in less than a second. In actually 0.4 seconds, people would hit the button and know whether that person was attractive or not. And they could actually predict the response that they would get from the subject in even less time, just looking at brain activity, in half the time, 0.2 seconds. So. A researcher from this study, if they showed you a picture of a person looking hot, regardless of gender would be the idea here, they could tell from your brain activity whether you found them attractive in 0.2 seconds. That's how deep this can go. A lot of these studies, by the way, I collected from a big write-up in Discover Magazine by Carl Zimmer, so make sure to look for that in the description. And by the by, this is all based on being turned on and then having sexual activity in some way. And none of this is about orgasm. This is all pre-orgasm. Because orgasm, everything gets crazy when that happens. So there you are. Your brain is sexually aroused. Your body stimulated. It's continuing to get more stimulated. Your brain's pain and anxiety and control centers are disabled or kind of like tamped down. Things are building. It's getting steamy in there. You're not really thinking anymore. You're just feeling. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, climax. I mean, hopefully, right? The muscles that were tightened during the turn-on phase now relax. And orgasm is actually a series of rhythmic contractions and feelings of ecstasy and bliss and sometimes rushes of emotion. And this has to do with the hormones that are being released in your brain, things like dopamine, oxytocin, and prolactin. And you may assume that an orgasm then after that, you get a quiet brain 
right? Your mind goes blank and you might just lay there or stand there or whatever it is that you're doing. Like the sky after a firework, right? The firework just drops down and then there's nothing. But that's not true at all. Actually, orgasm is a whole brain experience and a lot is happening even after climax. Research has found with people who masturbate inside fMRI scanners, that's how they got the research, that at orgasm, your brain floods with reward and bonding chemicals and hormones. And a study on men actually explained all of the different hormones and what they're all doing to you, which is really, really interesting. I apologize that this is only a study on men. I can't do the research. I can only find what I can find. And in this case, it was a study done specifically with men. So let's break down all the different hormones that are flying around in your brain at orgasm. One, dopamine. It's a reward chemical, really important. It also stimulates ejaculation. There's serotonin, which stimulates ejaculation in the spine, which I find fascinating, and inhibits ejaculation in the brain. So it's like a balance. There's the nitric oxide, which contracts the seminal vesicles, which are the glands that create most of the stuff that's in semen. There's oxytocin, which I mentioned a moment ago. That's got contractions inside of your body, those rhythmic contractions. It also has to do with sperm motility, stimulating ejaculation again and nervous system effects and why you feel so good after an orgasm. There's also prolactin, which is connected to postcoital sleepiness. It's part of the reason that many people feel sleepy after sex. And it also has to do with sexual desire, which is really interesting. There's also thyroid hormones, glucocorticoids in animals, estrogens, because for ejaculation, you actually need estrogen, even if you're a male, which is super interesting. There's androgens, which control ejaculation reflexes, as well as the pelvic floor, which is a really important part of the body and not particularly well studied, especially in women. If you have too much androgen, then you're going to have premature ejaculation. If you have too little, you're going to have delayed ejaculation. That's how important it is. There's a whole bunch of other stuff also going on. That's just a quick rundown. Just to give you an idea of how many things happen during this incredible part of human reproduction. But let me do a real quick sidebar here. Oxytocin is sometimes called the love hormone. I just want to like debunk that myth right now. Oxytocin does not make you love your partner, does not make you bond with whoever it is that you're with. It's a mischaracterization. It is connected to bonding, but scientists cannot say that it creates bonds. So yes, you release oxytocin and it's connected to bonding in some way, but just because you orgasm with someone doesn't mean you both are instantly bonded. So stop saying that. In fact, most studies done on oxytocin were done not in humans, but with prairie voles. And if you know anything about their sexuality, it is insane. Look it up. So interesting. So, end sidebar. So, again, that study was all done with men, which is, you know... Too bad, but uh, this is a problem in most research, especially in sex research. In the 1500s, scientists first realized that the clitoris was an important part of the human body, but it wasn't even mapped fully until 1998. 1998. That's not that long ago. The clitoris, which is incredible because the clitoris is a huge part of human sexuality. Yes, females have it. However, it's a huge part of human sexuality. Many women report clitoral and vaginal orgasms feel different from each other, which means it's a very important part of human sexuality. Let me just go down this little path for a minute. They think it might be because of blood flow, scientists think. A 2014 study 
where they observed women during clitoral and vaginal stimulation using ultrasounds. They found clitoral orgasms, altered blood flow in the exterior clitoris, and vaginal orgasms through vaginal penetration affected blood flow in the entire clitoral network, also known as the CUV. Really cool, right? And differences in blood flow were correlated to that change in sensation that was reported by the women they were working with. Super cool. Now, this isn't a how-to episode, as you've probably noticed. That would be a whole other thing, and we're not going to touch on that here. Which is a really good joke, but we're going to move on. There are a lot of benefits to orgasm, and that's really what I'm trying to get across in this whole series, is that sexuality is a human thing. It's a whole body, whole brain thing. Lots of stuff happens. It's not simple. There are lots of benefits. For example... Reduction in anxiety, stress, and lowering of blood pressure. It also can decrease depression symptoms. It can improve sleep. In some, it can improve immune response. That was a small study done with only 11 men, but it might actually help. Uh, For men that we know of, more orgasms could help people live longer and feel younger. This was a study of almost 1,000 Welshmen over four years. (laughs) And I don't know why they picked Welshmen of all of the people in the world, Uh, but... They did it with Welshmen, and they found that 350 or more orgasms a year could correlate to adding four years to their life. Essentially, it had a lower risk of death, which is so strange and interesting. It sounds like an evolutionary thing, doesn't it? Like as an aside editorially for me, it does seem like if we have more orgasms, we're more... Uh, self-propelled, you know, we have more of a chance of spreading our genetic code, so maybe we'll be able to stick around. I don't know. That's just my aside. Anyway. A question you might have after all this, and and this is interesting because we've mostly been focusing on human sexuality, but what about animals, right? Do animals who have sex feel all of these things too? Are these feelings universal? Uh, Do dogs and dolphins and cats and rats and lizards and insects all feel this stuff? According to Mark Beckoff, a University of Colorado biologist and author of The Emotional Lives of Animals, he told Live Science that, quote, mosquitoes, I don't know, but across mammals, They enjoy sex. So that thing of, oh, dolphins, they have sex for pleasure. Actually, it seems all mammals have sex and enjoy it. Animals have orgasms. They experience reduction in anxiety, less stress. And they actually did studies with infants, not like sexy infant time. That's gross. They, They gave babies sweets. And then they looked at their facial expressions and brain activity. They did the same with rats. And it turned out, this is how they know that animals enjoy things like this, the brain activity and facial expressions were mirrored. Both babies and rats made the same facial expressions and had the same brain activity when they were given something pleasurable. So this is how we are assuming that animals also feel pleasure during sex. Plus, from an evolutionary perspective, sex is risky. So if it's not pleasurable, why would an animal do it? You have to put yourself out there. You're very vulnerable. It leaves animals open to attack. And from a behavioral perspective, If it's pleasurable, it would encourage the behavior, which is why you should spay and neuter your pets, because they definitely want to do the sex. (laughs) And also for humans, uh, practice safe sex, because we also usually want to do the sex too. The last thing I want to mention here before we wrap up for today is Quartz did a meta-analysis of 4,500 articles published in the Journal of Sex Research and the Archives of Sexual Behavior from 1970 until 2017. Sexology, or the study of human sexuality, is not even a century old, so they wanted to look into some of the studies done. And read the piece. It's super good. It's got a lot of really good interactives. I'll put the link in the description. Broadly, what they found is we're now treating sex more humanely when it comes to research and scientific study. It's more 
human-focused now than it was even 50 years ago. We're not using terms like case and patient. It's not just about sexual deviance. It's about understanding the norms of human sexuality. And now we're using words like participant, which makes sense. Humans uh, have a lot of sex, and it's interesting to find out what the norms are of those behaviors. Orgasms can be lonely affairs. They can also be super social human activities between two or more partners. So there's lots to study. There's also in the literature, gay and lesbian is appearing more. And studies have words like bisexual, asexual, and gendered terms even more than they used to, which is great because we're recognizing that sexuality is a complex social thing. Things are getting better. We're learning more. And that's exciting, not in like a sexual way, more in an intellectual way, but there's still a lot to cover. You know, we know what's happening with sex now. We're starting to understand it more and more. You know, we're starting to grasp concepts. There's still a lot to learn. I mentioned the pelvic floor earlier. We still don't know that much about it, especially in women. And in general, it'd be great if we studied more females when it comes to human sexuality. We're really bad at that. But there's these studies going around that say millennials are having a lot less sex than they used to, than generations past. So what are we going to do? If orgasms are healthy and you want to have lots of them every year, but we're having less sex, what's going to make up the difference in the future? Robots? Augmented reality? Virtual reality? Something else? So everyone looks into the past when it comes to sex. Oh, the Victorians, they were so uptight. Or the 1950s, they're so square, you know. Or the 1960s, have free love. But what about forward with sex. What's next? Where are we going? What's going to happen? Virtual reality? Is monogamy still going to be a thing? Are sex robots a thing? Are we going to see the end of long-distance relationships? What the heck is a teledildonic? <laughs> what is coming next in the world of human sexuality? And some of these things that I listed are a yes, and some are a probably not. Remember a little bit ago when we were talking about all those chemicals and brain regions and about how sex is actually good for you, it's healthy? Let me expand on that just a little bit with this sidebar. Vibrators. It wasn't actually invented as a sex pleasure toy, but a medical device. Super neat. And thinking about orgasms as a way to live longer and be less anxious and less stressed or depressed, how is a sex robot with, say, a vibrator built into it any different? Could you call that a medical device? I mean, it depends on your angle, right? Anyway, and sidebar. Sex robots are interesting, and they're talked about a lot. There's a lot of different versions of them in science fiction, and some of those have floated into science fact. Things like inflatable sex dolls, which are mostly used for comedy these days. But there are also lifelike sex dolls. Uh, they're not robots. They're really just posable mannequins. But the nice thing about sex robots is it helps people with social difficulties. You don't have to worry about performance issues or being able to find that exact spot, you know, that spot that maybe you can't find. Uh, you don't have to worry about whether you have a headache or not or whether you don't feel attractive or how your mood is. In Barcelona, they have what some would call a robot brothel. Silicone sex dolls are inside of the brothel. They're cleaned very often throughout the day. And they're not actually robots, but some in the media are calling it a robot brothel. Um, but some doll makers, some people who do make these sex dolls, not the ones in the brothel, but a different doll maker, are working on adding AI to these sex dolls. And they want to put machines inside and make customizable personalities and have them talk to their owners. So imagine adding AI to that scenario something that can interact and talk back with you. For someone that might have social anxiety, 
that could be really beneficial to them. It could help them live a healthy life, have a healthy relationship in a safe space to then potentially go out and have a healthy relationship in a less safe space, like with an actual human. Maybe they never do that. Who are we to judge? In the meantime, technology is enabling relationships to sort of take baby steps into this future uh, in a purely digital sense, not so much in a physical machine robot sense. There's a pornography company that's working on VIRP or virtual intercourse with real people. Essentially, they use virtual reality and vibrators, electronic male sex toys, an internet connection, sometimes with a webcam model, and the people don't even have to be in the same room, and yet they can still initiate sex or intercourse of some kind, whether it's intercourse is actually a debate because you're not actually having intercourse, you're essentially doing mutual masturbation. Um, and this is part of a growing field called teledildonics and it's technology for remote sexuality, remote mutual masturbation. And the name for sex robot research for all kinds is also teledildonics. So if you're interested in that, maybe Google it, probably not at work, just for safety. Uh, and if all of that sounds maybe too involved for you, there are other baby steps into this sex robot future with haptic technology. If you saw the movie Ready Player One, you saw haptic technology in action. And not real haptic technology, but this futuristic haptic technology. In reality, haptic technology interfaces with the user through a sense of touch. If you can imitate or simulate touch, then you are doing haptic technology. When your phone vibrates on keyboards as you type, that is haptic technology or haptics. Uh, and they're working on these things for full body immersion. The Tesla suit is one product where the full body haptic suit is worn on both male or female bodies and you can create tiny electrical impulses in the fabric that can appear anywhere on the body and it's built for gaming but also for health and fitness. It can help you say, hey, this part of your body needs some work, this part of your body doesn't. Imagine if you were working out and you wanted to work out all of your different muscles. This type of suit could tell you, oh, this part of your body still needs some help. This part of your body's been overworked. This part of your body's overheated. You know, you can learn a lot about yourself using these feedback systems. Uh, and it's also built for virtual reality integration. There's even speculative technology, like nanotechnology gel. It's tech that comes from robotics. It's useful for their joints. It's kind of like robotic cartilage almost. And if you put it on the body, you can use it to stimulate erogenous zones. So we're not to sex robots yet. The most advanced way to have sex with technology at this point is still in the realm of virtual reality, mutual masturbation, and so on and so forth. But we are damn close to sex robots. The fourth International Congress on Love and Sex with Robots is set for December of 2018. And topics include robot emotions, humanoid robots, clone robots, entertainment robots, robot personalities, teledildonics, intelligent electronic sex hardware, gender approaches, effective approaches, psychological approaches, sociological approaches, roboethics, and including philosophical approaches to all of these things with robot sex. They are not leaving any microchip unturned in this search for the future of sexuality. And VR is already used for pornography on a daily basis. Of the top five VR websites on the internet, three are pornography sites. I don't think I probably had to tell you that, but uh, it was an interesting analytic. So before we go though, if you're having sex with a robot, are you cheating on your partner? Does it matter? In the future, will it matter? Monogamy is a fascinating topic for all sex researchers. 
And it is related to the chemicals that go through your brain and the way that you react to sexuality. All of those things uh, do come back to monogamy and polyamory and polygamy and all of these other really complicated conversations. But will monogamy exist in the future is a consummate topic because many people feel like they want to predict the end of monogamy. People love to talk about, is monogamy over? Is monogamy canceled? Is this the end of monogamy? And is this such a horrible thing we're torturing ourselves with? Monogamy is complex and very individual slash couple slash more than a couple decision, but there is some science here. Four and a half-ish million years ago, there was Artipithecus ramidus, which is a predecessor of Homo sapien. And in Scientific American, they wrote, quote, females preferred reliable providers to aggressive competitors and thus bonded with the better foragers. Essentially, if you were good at getting resources, Artie would bond with you if you were also an Artie. So the two Arties would bond together into a pair so they would be stronger together. The key seems to be resources and competition when it comes to whether or not we are monogamous as a species. I don't personally have any belief there. I think there is a continuum of monogamy. Different couples and different relationships are going to be different. But most evolutionary biologists, anthropologists, and researchers do seem to agree that we were probably polygynous at some point. We had one male with many females. And some would argue that we still are. Less than 10% of species are monogamous, and primates are in the 15 to 29% range there. So we're more likely to be monogamous because we're primates. But as our brains evolved and grew, there were advantages to monogamy. Parental investment was needed from both parents, and males needed to be part of child rearing as it got more complicated to raise children that needed to be more intelligent and have more resources. Making a baby took lots of time and training and education and also needed protection from predators while it was doing that. So it helped primate males to stick around and defend babies because if a primate male saw a baby that wasn't theirs, they would usually kill it or try to. Monogamy is more likely in species that are spread out as well. If you have a very widespread population, if they go for far distances for food or water, then you're more likely to be monogamous because you have that team. And this came from a couple of different studies, by the way, mainly done with primates. In other studies, though, STDs may have come into play as well. If there are hundreds of people and no condoms living in a small place in ancient humanity, diseases spread, which can kill or sterilize people, which then affects our ability to pass on our genes and affects our evolution, not to mention social factors. But none of this whole podcast has really been about the social factors around sex. It's just been about mechanical, molecular and all sorts of other stuff. If you want to talk about social factors, that is a whole other field of study, and maybe we'll get into that someday too. In the end, we are social animals. Sex is a social activity, and humanity is complicated. So even though sex is socially based, it is also built upon all of these little switches, molecular, neurobiological clues and cues that we're getting, not to mention hormones and all of this other stuff. The brain and the body work with our social networks in specific locations, with relationships and the emotions. All of this, even technology, is all connected to our sexuality. In the future, sex is going to be a lot like sex now. It's going to be messy and complex and personal, and yet somehow governed by whatever norms are there in the society at the time and also what's available. And as always, when it comes to human sexuality, more research is needed.
Y'all, this was a big episode, so thanks so much for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. Just a reminder, I'm Trace. You can find me on Seeker at youtube.com slash Seeker. You can also find me as myself over on youtube.com slash Trace Dominguez, on Twitter slash Instagram at Trace Dominguez. Seeker is also everywhere. We're easy to find. we got lots of stuff going on, all sorts of different interesting shows. If you like these sex episodes, you should check out Wild Sex and Wild Moms on Facebook. So, so great. My friend Kalen, who's a producer here at Seeker, makes those, and they are incredible. This episode was written by Trace Dominguez. It was fact-checked by Megan Bates. The associate producer was Victoria Barrios, and it was edited by Alex Estevez. This episode was recorded by Spencer Snyder, and our intern, Kara McCarlin, did a great job with listening to old episodes of Seeker Plus so we can rebroadcast them, so thanks to her. One more time, thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. We're really glad to be here, and we're really glad that we're one of the channels that you subscribe to and like, and if you don't subscribe to and like us, why don't you go ahead and do that? Because, you know, it'd be great. We'll be releasing and rebroadcasting updated versions of our episodes on this channel, so we'll definitely see you again next week. I'm Trace. Thanks again for listening.